0: Got that out of our system. Just kidding. It's, it is—it's sweet to watch everybody fellowship. I'll, I always tell the men too um, on Tuesday nights when we meet. Uh, I kind of stand behind them and watch them worship, and it—it's a really sweet sight to see the men worship God uh, as we before we get into the Word. And I tell them it's not always a sweet sound, but it's a sweet sight because, yeah. So, all right. So we are going to be in uh, Romans chapter five. We're going to finish up chapter five, verses six through twenty-one. Um, but again, as you're, as you're turning there, the book of Romans uh, just establishes some of the most foundational doctrines for our Christian faith. It, they're just essential, not for us just to read, not even just for us to understand, which it's important to understand them, but to apply to our daily walks. And so that's why we go through the scriptures verse by verse, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's so important to understand this rich portion of scripture. And so just to kind of pick and choose or cherry pick scripture here, cherry pick scripture there. Um, you can kind of fit that into your own narrative, but what's God's narrative? What's God's intention? And so that's, that's why we're going through this book at this time, I believe. Um, it's been said that Romans, uh, out of all the books of the Bible, Romans is one of the most comprehensive and systematic statements on the Christian faith. And so Paul really dives into justification by faith. And again, we've been reiterating and repeating the thesis statement of Romans, and hopefully you guys have it memorized by now. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, for I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation... For everyone who believes, that's the beauty of it, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man or the just man shall live by faith. And so... Paul hangs his entire letter on these two scriptures, these statements here, and so we're going to continue on that line of thinking. Remember chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives a very clear indictment to all have sinned, all have fallen short. doesn't matter if you're the spiritual person trying to gain enlightenment through false religion and and paganism, or if you're the self-righteous person who looks down on others thinking that you do good things, or if you're the ultra-super-righteous Jew abiding by the law to a a degree that you think is is good, everybody, both Jews and Gentiles are all sinners. None are good. No, not one. But Paul doesn't end the letter there. He doesn't end it on bad news. He starts to discuss what we discussed last week—the imputed righteousness, the righteousness credited to our account the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he likened it to Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God, and therefore it was credited unto him as righteousness. That plan of faith was uh, as righteousness was way before, established way before the law, 430 years before the law, and 14 years before. Circumcision was ever instituted. So, this was God's plan from the very beginning. It's nothing new. We see it in the life of Abraham. And so, Paul draws the parallel or the comparison. Abraham's faith is that of the Christian's faith. And so, that's what we discussed last week. And then, last Sunday, Pastor Eric went through the first five scriptures of chapter five, and, and Paul points out the model for this, uh, or the, excuse me, the results of this justification. And since we have established the point that there's no other means of getting right with God, there's no other way that I can come into a right standing with God to have my account cleared of my sin. Once we receive that justification, once we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. We are now on good terms. The the war is over. There is not just a ceasefire. That the war is over with God, we are no longer enemies of God, we are now at peace with God. And then we have tremendous benefits, tremendous results as a result of being at peace with God. The first one is, we, are, um, we have access to the very throne room of God. We now have access to our creator. We can approach his throne boldly because we are not in our sin. We have Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Um, We also uh, have the grace which we now stand. We receive the grace, the unmerited, undeserved favor. And now we are able to stand before God through that unmerited, undeserved favor. And so with these benefits of justification, we also now gain a new perspective Tribulations, trials in this world no longer are viewed as something that's negative. They're not easy. They're not something we would sign up for or even want to go through. However, we see them as a way to develop our Christian walk, as a way to mature and grow as a Christian. Uh, Pastor Eric pointed out that perseverance then leads to proven character, proven character to hope, and that hope does not disappoint. So there's this development that happens as a Christian when we go through these tribulations, when we maybe face some persecution or tough difficulties within our lives that come for, for the righteous and the unrighteous. That the, 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 Those things happen to everybody that now we can exalt in those tribulations knowing that God will do a work through those tribulations. And so at that point, that's where we find ourselves now. We're we're going to see how deep god's love is for us as we get into romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 21 so we'll take the first couple verses and again this is a rich portion of scripture we're going to have to kind of strap on our thinking caps a little bit It uh, is dense and it's thick. So we're going to do our best to to uh, expound upon it and make it uh, not only just readable, but understandable. Because as you read through it, you, you'll see that it, it is very deep water, if you if you will. So verse six, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though per- perhaps for the good man, someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul gives us the first idea here. We were helpless under the law. This idea of helpless means we were powerless. We were weak. It has the idea of being sickly, incapable to working out any sort of righteousness on our own. We were helpless, uh, completely stranded, if you will. The law exposes every weakness, every inability, every incapability, every shortcoming that we have. The law exposes it and shows it uh, drastically, and the human condition is on full display under the law. And so last Sunday, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl or not, but if I could describe Tom Brady, he would be like the law. And what I mean by that is he is the standard by which every quarterback now will be measured, right? He exposed the Kansas City defense at every turn. They were powerless. They looked sickly. They looked incapable. They were unable to work out any sort of answer to Tom Brady. And as a result, they succumbed to the law, right? They succumbed and unfortunately gave up uh, what they so desperately wanted to achieve, they were unable to overcome the standard by which every quarterback now will be measured. Tom Brady is like the law, the law's merciless, it never yields an inch it 's unforgiving it 's constant and so just like Tom Brady is in the Super Bowl every single, every single year, it's constant. No, that, that is like the law. The law is unyielding, it's unwavering, it's unforgiving. So, Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. So, Paul mirrors this statement in Galatians 4.4. 4. He says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So God even demonstrates his perfect character in his timing. God's timing is not only perfect, but the time period by which he chose to send his son was made full, was made complete. So it's not only that he had good timing, he allowed the timing of the law to be made complete. The law had operated for centuries, and it had served its purpose in bringing forth the unmistakable proof of man's sin. It had operated for centuries to, to show that man cannot justify themselves by the law. So therefore, at the right time, and in, in Galatians here, at the, at the perfect moment, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus, to now intercede on our behalf. And so we get to verses 7 and 8, and I couldn't help but to think of the secret service. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the agents within the Secret Service are commissioned, trained, and dedicated to putting their lives on the line for the President of the United States or any other official or dignitary they're assigned to. And this term, they have a term that they call of getting big when a threat uh, is posed. And so when a person uh, that they're protecting is threatened, they get big, meaning one of us would probably get small. We're going to dive under the chair. We're going to take cover. We're trying to protect ourselves. The Secret Service are trained the opposite. They are trained to get big. They want to put themselves between the threat and the person, the president, let's say, whom they're protecting. And so their body becomes the shield and they get as big as possible to, to provide cover. Like I said, our natural reaction would to get small, to, co- to cover up, to get, to get small and, and, and to not take that fire. During the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, Agent uh, Hill was riding in the car directly behind the president and the first lady. And when the shots rang out, he jumped from his car to JFK's car and he put the first lady and the president, who unfortunately was shot at that time, he put them down, because they were sitting up, he put them down on the back seat, and he covered the first lady while the uh, shooting continued. Uh, Agent Youngblood was in the car behind in Lyndon B. Johnson's car, and when he heard the shots fired, he jumped over the front seat and covered LBJ at that particular time with his own body. In Reagan's assassination attempt, where Reagan was actually shot, the assassination attempt on Reagan occurred, And Agent McCarthy, one of the many agents, spread his body between the shooter and President Reagan. And as six more shots rang out, he took a 22 caliber gunshot to the abdomen for the president. See, the Secret Service is trained to do this. And whether or not the president is a righteous man or a good man or the First Lady is a righteous woman or a good woman, they're trained, they're commissioned, they are assigned to do this. But what Paul is saying is, What if you're not of the secret service? What what if you're not trained? What if the person that you are seeking to maybe die for, what if they are maybe even righteous or good? Chances are that you're not going to put your uh, life in harm's way for somebody who's even righteous or maybe even good. Paul established in in chapter 4 that none are good, no, not one. (laughs) He already established that as a fact. And so how deep is God's love? Verse 8. He demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, while we were in the state of sin, he died for us. And this term "die for is merely, not just merely substitutionary. It wasn't just A for B. It was in place of, it was on behalf of our, he, he died on our behalf. And so that shows the depth and, the, and the, the care that God had for us, that he would send his son on our behalf, showing his divine love, and his loving empathy for our condition at that particular time. You could say in the secret service term, Christ got big on our behalf. He wasn't just a stand-in. He wasn't just a substitute, a body double. He, was, he took the bullet for us. He shielded us from the sure fire of death, and he got big for us. So it wasn't when we got righteous with God. It wasn't that we terms, uh, achieved some type of justness. It wasn't that we... Uh, God, on our good behavior, our best behavior, that's when he chose to die for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And so one of the schemes of the enemy that sometimes uh, I think people uh, get misguided in and are severely mistaken is they need to do some type of cleanup work in their lives before they come to church, before they approach God or, or come to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. If I just do a couple things, that's when I can, I can uh, I'll, I'll maybe stop drinking for a week, and then that's when I'll go to church. I'll, I'll stop watching my R-rated movies, and then I'll, I'll think about coming to Jesus. And it's just a ploy, a plot from the enemy. He died for us while we were yet sinners. This is a true story. My dad, uh, has a cleaning service come to his house once every two weeks and I think it's so hilarious that the day before the cleaning service comes, guess what he does? He cleans up. Doesn't make sense to me. It's not how it works. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we get completely cleaned up by God. In fact, we can't even do it ourselves. It, it, it's impossible. It's impossible. So it's a misnomer. You get misguided in that thinking by the enemy. And I believe it's a plot of the enemy to keep people away from coming to faith in Christ, coming to church and staying in fellowship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The depth of his love is on full display. And so now we get into kind of the title of this portion of scripture. We're going to see the term much more. I believe it's seven different times. Christ is our much more. Much more. Paul uses this as a term of emphasis, and I believe he uses it to show we have a certain understanding of Christ, but I believe it's so much more than what we even think or know right now. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to see what that much more is. Paul's is going to try to describe it here tonight in these next few verses, but he uses this term much more seven different times to try to describe and emphasize how much more Christ is than what he seems on the surface. So the depths of God's love, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And you can say, okay, Christ died. Now what? God's love is comprehensive, and it refuses to stop short of just dying. He's saying there's much more. There's more to come. And so he's going to accomplish everlasting salvation and overcome the enmity, the state of us being an enemy with God which are sin established so he's he's not going to stop short at just dying while we were yet yet sinners christ died for us he's not going to stop there there is much more so verse 9 much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of god through him for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So I'm sure you've seen those infomercials on cable television. If you act now, there's more, right? There, don't, don't, don't wait, there's more. And, and then, you know, you can get twice the amount if you, if you act now. And, and in a sense, there's so much more involved here with Jesus. It's, it's more than him just dying and, and justifying us. We are saved from the wrath of God through him. Through Jesus' sacrificial death at the cost of his blood, he paid the cost in full when he cried out tetelestai when he was nailed to that cross. And that, that, that term tetelestai means it is finished or better rendered, paid in full. He paid our sins in full. So God's salvation, when he uses that word saved, we use it in a general sense at times. But just like a diamond ring, there's many facets to our salvation. Salvation. If you were to take a diamond ring and use one of those little uh, magnifying glasses, if you will, and you start to look at that, magnif- uh, at that diamond ring or that diamond under the lights, and you start to see all the beautiful facets of that ring and how the light reflects, you start to look at your salvation, and it's most, much more than just that general term. We've been talking about the first facet for the last couple weeks, justification. We're saved and, and from being held to our ca- uh, account from our past sins. Justification, And that's what we called imputed righteousness last week. God credits Christ's righteousness to our account. It's imputed to us. So we're saved from our past sins. Justification. Another form of our salvation is sanctification. And we will get to that in chapter 6 next week. We're saved from being held to account to that day-to-day struggle. Those day-to-day struggle with the flesh. Those day-to-day uh, temptations that come our way. We are sanctified. Saved from the power of sin. We no longer have to succumb to the power of sin as we walk with Christ. And and again, Paul will get into that in chapter six. That's called sanctification. Another facet of our salvation is glorification. At some point in time, we will either be translated by uh, our, our, our being raptured or physical death. And at that point, we will receive our glorified body and be in the presence of the Lord. And when we're in the presence of the Lord, we know that the sin cannot dwell in God's presence. So therefore, we will be saved from the presence of sin. We will no longer have to dwell in the presence of sin any longer. But Paul is saying here that we are saved also from the wrath of God, the wrath that is to come. Paul is emphasizing this point with that term much more. He's emphasizing that as for a reason, He wants us to get our attention. It's an important point. We're saved from the wrath of God. So that begs the question, when does the wrath of God come? When is that going to happen? And if you turn to the back of the book, I don't know if you ever were in math class and you look for the answers, You turn to the back of our book, you look at Revelation six different times, you see that term wrath of God. Twice in chapter 14, twice in chapter 15, once in chapter 16, and once in chapter 19. God is pouring out his wrath on a God-rejecting, God-hating world. They have rejected the Son of God and he is now pouring out his wrath. And that is why we believe here at Calvary Chapel that the church will not, is not appointed unto wrath, that the bride of Christ will, will not be in the tribulation. Yes, in this world we will have tribulations. We discussed that. Those are the things that uh, go from uh, that, that we just spoke of, where we have perseverance and proven character and hope, and, and that Christian development will occur as a result of persecutions and difficulties. But the great tribulation that is to come, that is what we are saved from the wrath of God. So Paul says that we, much more than we are saved from the wrath of God, the, this pre tribulation rapture that we uh, believe in, that is one of the, uh, the reasons why. The second, much more, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we are also saved by his life. Much more, we are saved by his life. Paul now refers to the unsaved person as an enemy. That is a very drastic, intense term. He's he's referred to us as sinners, but now... Those who are unsaved, those who are trying to achieve justification through their works have not received Christ. They are an enemy of God. And so Paul is using this as a, in a judicial sense, not necessarily to describe God's temperament, but more so to illustrate one's position before God. And, and he uses this same term in Romans chapter 11, verses 28, as he's conveying a similar thought about Israel. Now, verses 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. So when you, wanna, you, you think God's done with Israel, I encourage you to read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. God is not done with Israel. But Paul conveys a similar thought here regarding Israel. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God does, does not forget that he chose them as, as, the, as the nation by which he was going to send his word, his promises, the Messiah. Therefore, they're the beloved. But as a result of the Son, the Son of God, in relationship to their uh, acceptance of their Messiah, they're enemies because they have rejected the Son. And so, therefore, those who have rejected Christ, who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are enemies. But while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled. While we were enemies of God, we are reconciled. So let that sink in for a second. Jesus provided a way of reconciliation at the full cost of his life at the time when we were enemies to God. And much more reconciliation, peace with God, we are saved by his life. We are reconciled and then now we are saved by his very life. So Paul's reasoning, his logic is fascinating to me because he establishes the fact that Jesus died for us as sinners and as enemies. He starts to refer to those those terms that are are just uh, intense in, in, in in their definition. We are saved while we were enemies. So get this, and this is an important point because I think this is another tactic or scheme of the enemy when you are saved. At times you might believe or you might start to think God doesn't love you anymore. Look at this verse. He loved you when you were an enemy of his. And if he loved you while you were an enemy of his, how much more will he love you when he is, you're his friend? I don't know if he can love you anymore. He already demonstrated how much he loved you by sending his son to the cross. So if you think God doesn't love you as his friend, as somebody who has received his son, as his, as his or her Lord and Savior, it is a plot, a ploy, a scheme of the enemy who wants to divide you and wants to separate you from God once again. He wants to get you out of fellowship. He wants to get you out of service. He wants to to start eroding your faith in your Lord and Savior. He loved you as an enemy. He loves you as a friend. So don't ever buy into that lie. And so verse 11, there's more. (laughs) And not only this, he says, and not only this, we exult. And that word exult means to show triumphant uh, jubilation or to be elated. We exult through Christ through whom we have received And and underline that point, we have received reconciliation. Paul is pointing out this reconciliation has nothing to do with us. We have received it as a gift. So this reconciliation is something that is unmerited, undeserved, unearned. Again, it's just grace upon grace. God's love being poured out on us. While we were enemies, he died for us. But then not only that, we were reconciled to God and we received this reconciliation. We did nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. All we did is we put our faith and trust in Christ. Everything else is heaped upon us. So may we not forget to celebrate what God has done for us through his son. And that's why uh, we, we come each Wednesday. We sing our songs of worship. We exult in his name and, and we have that jubilant elation, that, that triumphant jubilation in what he's done for us. So here's where it gets a little bit deeper as we go through verses 12 through 21. And so it says this, uh, uh, 12 through 21, oh wow. Here we go. Uh, pages are out of order. So this portion of scripture, again, is, is, is densely packed. There's a lot of text here and it's packed with theology. So we're, we're gonna try to do our best to, to break it apart a bit and, and make it understandable. Um, and not that you guys aren't great Bible students, but just to make sure that we're all understanding and on the same page. And so, again, he's established that we're all sinners. But now, how did that status come to be? He made the statement, but what's the evidence of that statement? Where where did that statement come from? How are you coming to that conclusion? Things that that we're going to see, he's going to use the term much more five more times. He's going to use that term much more five more times. He's going to repetitively use the term one 11 more times. And that's to refer to our identification with Adam and Christ. He's going to start singling out Adam and, and, and contrasting him with Jesus. And then he's also going to use the word rain almost as a, a personifier, if you will, five different times. And so we'll see these repetitive terms as we go through. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or credited to our account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So through one man, sin entered the world and death then came through sin. You're saying, wait a second, Chris. Uh, that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem fair. How can I be held account, accountable for Adam's sin? One man, you mean one man sinned and therefore because he blew it, now, everybody doesn't have a chance. I don't get a chance to, 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 to make it right, to, to do it right. Because Adam blew it, I don't get a chance. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem logical. It, that doesn't seem like that's from a God of wisdom, of love, of, of, of fairness. And so you got to think about it this way, though. Think about it from God's perspective. Adam, Adam was natural man's best chance to live a perfect life. Adam was created by God out of the dust, right? He formed him out of the dust. He was given life by God's very breath. He was placed in the paradise of the Garden of Eden, given perfect conditions. And all he had to do was do what? Not eat of the tree that was in the middle of the garden. That was the, that was the only thing he was not to do. He was, he was to name all the different beasts and, and, and the animals, and he was given the perfect conditions. He was as pure as man could be, made perfect, right? He had no knowledge of sin. He had no knowledge of of any of that even existing. So when Adam made that choice to eat the forbidden fruit, sin and then death through sin entered the world through that one man and death. So I think about it this way. Um, The thought came into mind in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You remember that Israel and, and the Philistines were facing off. They were both on opposite mountainsides with a valley in between. And the Philistines as you read the text, you get a sense that they had the upper hand, because guess who they had? They had Goliath. Goliath emerges from the Philistine camp, boasting of his strength, equivalent to kind of talking trash, right? And he says, am I not the Philistine? Choose a man for yourself. I defy the ranks of Israel. And the Bible says, after hearing Goliath, they, the uh, Israelites, were greatly dismayed. They were intimidated. They knew they didn't stand a chance. So the Philistines had the upper hand in this case, and they had a champion, a great warrior of overwhelming height, overwhelming size, armor, weaponry, and, and support from his fellow soldiers. You could imagine the support that Goliath had from his, uh, his fellow soldiers. And what fascinates, me happened, what fascinates me is what happens after David slays Goliath. That in and of itself is fascinating, but that's not the point of the story. What fascinates me is what happens after Goliath is slayed. The Philistines saw their champion die right before their eyes his head cut off and guess what happens the israelites plunder and completely overtake the philistines their champion was dead and they believed if goliath is dead if our very best is slain we don't stand a chance individually there's no way we can overtake the israelites because our champion has succumbed already he's already dead so adam was our champion he was our best shot in terms of natural man He was our best shot at living a sinless life, and so since Adam was our champion, our Goliath, if you will, his our best chance. He he broke the one thing that he wasn't supposed to do. He violated the one boundary God set for him not to eat of that forbidden fruit. So therefore, just like the Philistines were were plundered and overtaken by the Israelites, so too we, me, you, all of us would have had uh, in in our current state would not have st- stood a chance in being perfect, in being justified through perfection. And so therefore, Paul is saying the entire human race is now, it is now infected. It has spread to all of us, right? And we've heard that word quite a bit, slow the spread. This the sin has spread and death through sin has entered the world and it has spread to all of mankind. And so you might be saying, well, what about that baby that is, is that newborn baby Are are they sinful? Have they sinned yet? And they might not have committed a sin yet because they don't have the conception of what sin is and what sin isn't, but it's not that they are, it's not that somebody sins and becomes a sinner. We're born in a sinful state, therefore we are sinners. Does that make sense? It's the chicken or the egg idea. It's not that we sin and then we become sinners. It's we're born as sinners already. We're born in a state of sin because of Adam. Therefore, we are sinners. And David actually takes it one step further. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in, my, in sin, my mother conceived me. Even in conception, <laughs> because we are in this sinful state, our mothers and fathers are in this sinful state as well. We are conceived In sin, And so therefore, Paul is saying, because Adam, this first man sinned, it has spread through and and infected all of us as natural men and women. So the surest fact about life is what? It, It ends in death, right? We know that life ends in death, and therefore, that is the evidence that sin entered into the world, and death has entered in through sin. So in God's wisdom, he contend the entire human race through one man, but he didn't leave the, the, he didn't put a period at the end of that sentence. The other day, I was, I skipped it, I was taking my dog for a walk. And it was right before that storm came in, and I saw this beautiful rainbow. And I just looked at the darkness of the sky, and that just pictured sin to me. Just pictured the sin that, that, is a, uh, that, 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 that we have in, in our human nature. But that rainbow just demonstrates that God didn't leave it there that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that there is a, a silver lining or a rainbow even amongst that, that darkness of sin. And so when I, when I was out there kind of looking at that storm coming at me and, and that rainbow forming, and that rainbow didn't start that way, it just continued to form as I was out there with my dog, it, it just reminded me of God's goodness, that even though there is this darkness that, that is part of my sinful nature, God has given us Jesus Christ as our savior in that state while we were yet sinners. And so when when we look at at verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Death reigned still from Adam, from the first man to Moses. From Adam to Moses, death reigned. And now Paul draws a comparison from Adam to Jesus. And Jesus is called the last Adam in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe. So Adam is a type or a pattern of of, of Jesus, And he's not comparing him. He's more uh, giving us a contrast. Adam's transgression was passed through everybody he represented, which is the human race. Adam represents the human race. And so therefore his death, or excuse me, his sin, then translates into death coming into the world. And it's then passed through everybody who he represents. Christ's redemption is passed to all who he represents. Everybody who comes to a faith in Christ, we now receive salvation through Christ. So Adam's sin... Just as Adam's sin pervades all of the human race, all who come to Christ now receive salvation as a result. And so verses 15 through 17, Paul continues to establish that Adam is a type of Christ. Paul is careful to draw a stark contrast here. Again, he's drawing a contrast, not a comparison, but a contrast between Adam and Jesus to show how the free gift is vastly superior to the transgression. The free gift that Jesus offers, for God offers through Christ, is vastly superior to the transgression, and so Paul is going to use the term "much more." And on the other hand, as these emphatic statements or as uh, as a point of contrast, to ensure we understand the distinction and the differentiation between Adam as a type of Christ, and so and and so here we go, verse fifteen. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for. If For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more than who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. So again, there's a lot there, right? When you read that, you have to reread that and reread that and really mull it over. So to boil that down, the free gift is not like the transgression. How? Paul has stated that through one man, Adam's sin, transgression and sin came into the world and many died as a result. Paul then states that through one man, Jesus Christ, the gift, the free gift, just doesn't cancel out Adam's sin. It's not a one-for-one deal. The much more then is, not only does Christ cancel out Adam's sin, but all of the sin from, from, for all of mankind. For all who come to Christ, all of those sins are now paid for. All of Christ's righteousness, now Christ's, <laughs> Righteousness is now imputed to our account. We receive that. That's the the point that Paul is trying to make. Christ's righteousness is now credited to our account, to all of our accounts who come to him. It's not just Adam's account that is is, uh, cleared. So this wasn't a one-for-one deal. And Christ didn't just cancel out Adam's original sin, but he canceled out the multitude of sins for all of mankind that followed after Adam's original sin. And so Adam's fall brought sin, death, judgment and condemnation to all of mankind. But Christ, the finished work on the cross, brings justification to all who believe. That's the point Paul is making here. Christ is the much more. He's the much more than. It's more than what Adam did. And it seems like a lot. It seems very drastic. How can one man blow it for all of mankind? But much more than how can Christ, how can one man redeem all of mankind and not only that not only die for us while we were enemies not only die for us while we were sinners but save us from the wrath that is to come to save us through his life Paul is saying it is that much better so Paul now shifts his focus away from contrasting Adam as a type of Jesus to contrasting the actions between Adam and Christ he calls the one he starts to contrast the one transgression with the one act of righteousness The act of one transgression and the act of one act of righteousness. Verse 18, it says, So then, or that can also be rendered or translated consequently or as a consequence, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God gave Adam one boundary, gave him one boundary line not to cross. He was not to cross it, and he crossed it, right? And it resulted in condemnation for all men, judgment and condemnation. Jesus was given one act of righteousness to complete, and he completed it. It was the cross. So what was the act of righteousness? It's defined beautifully in, uh, by Paul in Philippians chapter two. And I'm just it, oops. there we go. Chapter two. Uh, and I'm just going to look at verses five through eight. Because Paul starts to talk about not looking out for your own personal interests, but uh, regarding other interests over yourself. So he says, have that attitude or have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Here's the act of righteousness, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Adam's act was selfish, self-serving. He succumbed to the, the, lustful, uh, the, 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 the uh, lust of the eyes. He served his flesh in that moment. Jesus, com- contrast that with Jesus' one act of righteousness. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He was obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So Paul adds the term justification of life now here in verse 18 and to say that Paul, that, that Jesus' act of obedience doesn't just result in our justification, but it, it starts to uh, it invoke the idea that we now have a new lease on life. We have a new passport to life in a sense. Our passport to a new life in Christ is filled with his righteousness and obedience. That justification uh, to life, it is a, a a new lease on life for us. As not only we receive Christ's righteousness, but now we receive His uh, uh, obedience and and His His uh, justification. It just more. It, it does more than just set aside the adverse uh, effects of sin. We get so much more than that. And so now Paul shifts in verses 20 and 21 to to revert back to the law. He hasn't talked about the law at all. It's all about Adam's disobedience to God in the garden, that one single act, that one single transgression. And so now he goes back to the law in verse 20. He says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that is probably, uh, that's a verse that I hold on to very, very tightly, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's motive for introducing the law wasn't to increase sin. It it wasn't necessarily to rack up the charges against mankind and to evoke uh, more judgment and more condemnation to heap all of that punishment on on mankind. That's not why he invoked the law. The law was given really to restrain evil. It's a way to to identify evil from good and to restrain evil. Uh, The law was also uh, said by Paul in, in Romans 7, 13, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Though it's unwavering, Though it's, it's, it's not merciful, it's holy, it's righteous, and it's, and it's good. But individually, the law was added that we would have specific knowledge of how far we fall short of God's standard. It gives us individual understanding of how far we fall short. As we individually compare, we take inventory of our own lives, our own walk, we can start to compare our lives honestly with the law and see how far we fall short, and it sets the stage for our Savior And Jesus expounds upon the law in the Sermon on the Mount and he starts to apply the law in ways that had never been applied before. He says, if you look at a woman as if to lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. The Jewish Jewish leaders had never thought of it that way. They thought of the physical act but they didn't think of if I'm looking on a woman as if to lust, I take that second, third look, I start to engage that thought, and I I play that thought all the way out into the sex act. It's just as if I committed adultery. Jesus said you have committed adultery in your heart. Everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity or unfaithfulness makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. They had never thought of the law that way. And Jesus did this uh, uh, not to necessarily... um, to, to, uh, uh, to show that sin, he shows us that sin has increased because these, these men thought that they were uh, living uh, in a way that was uh, agreeable to the law and, and, and satisfactory to the law. But he was really showing that they too ha- had a depravity that they weren't recognizing and weren't willing to, to accept. And so therefore the law was given defining and exposing sin and the depravity of man. But where it was given, grace abounded all the more. God's grace was also part of the formula. It wasn't just the sin increasing. Grace abounded all the more. And again, I went back to, in my thinking, this is how my brain kind of worked, back to my days of of teaching algebra. And you would teach equations and inequalities. And so you would think, oh, this is an equation. Well, no, it's not an equation because one is not equal to the other. If sin increased, then grace was greater than. It wasn't equal to, it was greater than. So grace abounded all the more. The more sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's uh, inequality, if you will, was heavy on the grace more so than the sin. So he didn't just add the law to heap condemnation and judgment on us. He also, uh, grace abounded all the more. So as man's transgressions piled up, God's grace piled up even higher. God's grace reigned. And so I came across this quote and and I thought it was beautiful. It says, sin poses as an absolute king with death, death as his high priest. But in the end, sin is exposed as an imposter and is forced to submit to a greater authority. Grace, reigning through the righteousness as its high priest, is eternal, absolute, and abounds in far fuller measure. Grace is far more a blessing than sin ever was as a curse. Grace is far more a blessing than sin ever was as a curse. So where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin reigned in death, grace reigned in righteousness to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the conclusion of chapter 5, we see that Paul masterfully has established that while we were yet sinners, while while we were at enmity with God, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. How much more does he love us as one who is faithfully accepted and putting our faith and trust in him? That we are now justified not by the law, but by faith. And saved from the wrath of God and reconciled all because of what Christ did for us. And though sin and death entered the ro- world and reigned through one man, Adam, resulting in our condemnation and judgment, the free gift, God's grace, came through one man, Jesus Christ, in order to cover the many transgressions resulting in our justification. The obedience of one man made many righteous. The, the disobedience of one man led to many, many, uh, the, the death of many so up until this point, Paul has asked and answered questions having to do with why does a person need to be justified? Who are the sinful? Uh, how can a person be justified or made right before God? He's, he's, he's asked and answered all of those questions up until this point as we get to chapter 6. But a righteous man or a righteous woman, once they get saved, they can't just be left there. Because a saved man, a saved woman is still prone to their own devices they still have those fleshly desires that are that reside in, in, in their in their flesh. They have these worldly temptations that come their way. And yes, positionally, we're good. Christ has, has paid it. We're justified. Our account is good. So the, the act of salvation has been is complete. But we have to contend with the day-to-day sin. So therefore, we have to depend on the divine resources that God provides us within his salvation that extends beyond justification. It doesn't mean that we have to work for our salvation. Remember, salvation is done. It's paid for. It's already settled. But now we're talking about our Christian walk, our day-to-day walk. How does that work? And so I have a little bit of a little graph or a little uh, a graphic to show you. So a person is born in a sinful state. We establish that through Adam, we're born in this sinful state. And as we live, we live in that sinful state until he or she places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And at that very moment, what happens? Bible students, we're saved. We are justified. Just as if we've never sinned, we are now justified. God imputes his righteousness onto our account. He credits our account with Christ's righteousness, and then he credits Christ's account with our sinfulness. That's the exchange. And remember I said last week, I don't know who wouldn't take that deal. I'll take it any day of the week. So at that moment that I put my faith and trust in Christ, I am now justified. And now I make a 180. I'm going the other way. My righteousness is now God's righteousness. He sees me as if I've never sinned. And that's what repentance is, right? I take, a, I take a 180 turn. I was going my way of sinfulness. Now I'm going the way of righteousness, God's righteousness. He sees me as if I've never sinned. And then at my point of death, I receive that glorified body or the rapture. I see that glorified body. And at that point, yes, the Christian would be saved. You would be saved from God's wrath. You would receive your glorified body. You would spend eternity with the Lord but there's one other component that Paul is going to start diving into here in chapter 6, and it's about sanctification. It's about that walk, that day-to-day challenge that we have, that day-to-day taking up the cross with uh, uh, the cross of Christ, crucifying our flesh, not making any provision for the flesh, killing the sin in our life, that we may live a life holy and set apart for God, Un- unwavering, uncompromised, uh, and that is not trying to achieve our uh, salvation. Remember, that's done. We've just spent a, a multitude of chapters establishing the fact that justification, a just man will live by faith. So we're, our, our salvation is sure. Now, how do I represent the Lord in my day-to-day walk? How do I apply the things practically that, that I learn in the Bible, that I get in fellowship, that I can do now in, in my walk? How can I apply that in my life? And it's not as a means of earning salvation. It's a means of representing uh, uh, Jesus Christ. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, be called after his name, I want to make sure that I represent him well, that I don't give cause for the enemy to blaspheme, that I don't misrepresent him in a way that will cause another brother or sister to stumble, to make somebody say, oh, you're one of those Christians I would never have anything to do with Christianity to, to cause somebody not to come to the faith. And so uh, Paul is going to embark upon what we call now imparted righteousness. The imputed righteousness is credited to our account. We now, our our account is now zeroed out. Our sin is no more. But now it's the imparted righteousness of God. And that is the divine resources that we need for our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So we start in that sinful state. We walk that walk for however long we come to Christ. At that moment, we put our faith and trust in Christ. We're justified. Our sins are paid for. We now take a 180 turn and we're walking in God's righteousness. And then through that day-to-day walk, we're set apart. We are now uh, set apart for the Lord until that point of death or the Lord comes before them. Amen? So you don't want lo- to miss out on chapter six, I'm telling you. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we uh, are so grateful for how comprehensive and how great a salvation we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is simply your love just lavished upon us, grace upon grace, where our sin abounded, your grace abounded all the more. And and Lord, we we thank you that as we understand how you are the much more, as we dig into your word, we see that you're more than what we previously understood. And Lord, we probably don't even understand a fraction of it. So, Lord, as we continue our Christian journey, as we continue our walk with you, may we abide in you. May we continue to draw closer to you. And that you would start that work of sanctification with us the moment our head leaves the pillow. That we would set our day apart for you, that we would crucify our flesh, that we would take up our cross follow after you, not looking behind us to the sin that once so easily entangled us. We know our flesh will pull at us. We know the temptations of the world will will, will pass before our eyes and, 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 and lure us. But that's when we need those divine resources to come into play. Scripture memorization, having the word on the tips of our tongue the times when we get discouraged, to start praising you, to remember your faithfulness, not to forget how good you've been to us, but to remember how faithful you've been to us and to be thankful for that. That is the will of God for our lives, Lord, is is thankfulness. And so, Lord, as we embark upon this journey as a church, as a body of Christ, Lord, we pray that you would bless it and that you would empower us by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit to do so, to represent you well, not to earn our salvation, but to bring glory to your name. Not to earn our salvation, but to bring many to you, to draw men unto you, to point to you, to have a testimony that is unmistakable, undeniable. I was once one way and now I'm not that way anymore that the evidence would be so clear that those around us couldn't deny it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make us holy. You called us to be holy for you are holy and strive for perfection, even though we will fall short, that that is our target, that we aim high. And so, Lord, uh, I pray a blessing over your people this evening. I pray, Lord, that your the power of your Holy Spirit would reside in their homes. That the spirit of reconciliation would extend to every relationship in their home. The marriage relationship. Mother, daughter, father, daughter, father, son, mother, son. Lord, if there's strains within relationships between siblings, friends, may may all of that just melt away in in light of what you've done for us that while we were yet sinners while we we were enemies of yours you died for us and Lord if we are to follow after you if we are to abide in you Lord then those relationships must be reconciled and you have given us the ministry of reconciliation so I pray Lord that homes would be a place of peace place of love place of togetherness oneness unity and Lord that light would just emanate from these homes Lord that they would be beacons in their neighborhoods that as people walk by their home they would know that that is a house that serves you for as Joshua said "As, as for me and my house we will serve the Lord choose this day whom you will serve and may we make that choice each and every day as we walk through the threshold of our door and when we return, we can say we chose to serve the Lord today. So Lord, would you bless your people tonight? And finally, if you have not received the Lord, if you have not, if you've been walking on that path and you haven't made it to the cross and received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're trying to justify yourself through your works, but you're done trying on your own and you realize I need a savior, I'd love to pray with you. I'd be remiss if I didn't offer that, that prayer right now. Is there anybody out there that would just raise your hand, love to pray with you, and maybe you've walked away, you were on that path and you've walked away and you've backslid a bit and you want to recommit your life. love to say a simple prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't we all stand for a closing song? Um, Pray, Lord, that the Lord give you a a blessed rest of the week. And that he uh, goes before you. And that again, that that there is just a a peace in your home that is unlike any other. Guys have a blessed week.